This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. Have you ever wondered what happens after you flush a toilet? Where does all that dirty water go? I know, it's kind of a gross topic, but daily life in our region would literally grind to a halt without the complex web of pipes and treatment plants that purify our poop. And it's pretty complicated stuff, actually. Yet we get to take this process for granted every day simply because it works. Our sewage isn't spilling into lakes and rivers, which still happens in some parts of the country. And the cost per resident to maintain and operate all this wastewater infrastructure is pretty modest compared with other places. One of my favorite things to write about as a reporter are all the hidden systems that make modern life possible. So it's no surprise that I get very excited whenever I get to write about wastewater. That's why today it's a special episode of the podcast. We're devoting the whole show to this smelly topic, and it's just me talking about all the things I've learned about wastewater in my years covering this for the Star Tribune. Let's kick things off with a question we received in January from David Piper. I live in South Minneapolis, so I'm just curious about what happens when you take a shower, go to the bathroom, where where does it all go? Does it end up in the Mississippi or some other space? And then what kind of condition is it in when it enters the next body of water, if indeed it ever does? Now, I wrote a story answering David's question in April, focusing on what goes on behind the scenes at the behemoth treatment plant at the center of our wastewater system. And we'll get to that in a moment. But let's start back at your house. After you use the toilet, take a shower, or do the dishes, what happens? Well, all that dirty water flows out of your home to pipes owned by whatever city that you live in, often in the middle of the street. But eventually it reaches bigger pipes owned by the Metropolitan Council, the agency that runs our wastewater system. These pipes are known as interceptors, and they're kind of like highways for our poop. One of them is actually buried 200 feet beneath Interstate 94 between Minneapolis and St. Paul. If you live in Forest Lake or somewhere far from the plant in St. Paul, your water might spend an entire entire day traveling on these pipes. Now let's talk about how big all of this wastewater infrastructure is. The network of pipes is 600 miles long, which means if you put them end to end, it would reach to Kentucky. So on average, they're about four feet wide, but if you're getting closer to the treatment plants, they can be up to 14 feet wide, which is a pretty big pipe, but it's collecting all that water that's coming from the different pipes around the region. And inside, it's a pretty rough environment, as you can imagine. When all that dirty water sloshes around in the pipes, it's releasing hydrogen dioxide, which starts to corrode those pipes from the inside. So that's why the Council spends a lot of money, about $100 million a year, repairing and rehabbing the system underground. Now, we're not building a lot of new interceptors these days, but back in the 1990s when the metro area was sprawling outwards, there were these huge debates over where they should go and whether the new pipes were contributing to urban sprawl. I actually keep a map of this interceptor system beside my desk at work, which I know is strange, but the reason is because it's directly tied to the development patterns in the Twin Cities. So why is that? Well, it costs a lot to build these pipes. So to keep the system running efficiently, the Met Council tells cities that send wastewater for treatment to plan for a certain amount of housing development. So when you look at the map of what's serviced by the wastewater system, it can sort of be a proxy for the urbanized part of our metro area. Okay, before we get to the science of how it's treated, let's talk about my favorite bit of wastewater history, which has to do with a particular pipe
pipe that crosses the Mississippi River just north of the Lake Street Marshall Avenue Bridge. We can't see it, but it carries most of South Minneapolis's wastewater to be treated in St. Paul, including mine. But how that pipe got there is pretty amazing. In the 1930s, divers wearing lead shoes, lead belts, and those old-fashioned metal diving helmets bolted 48-foot-long, 20-ton pipes together in thick mud at the bottom of the Mississippi River. All that work was done using compressed air wrenches. And there's pictures of this, and I'll link in the show notes to a really interesting little photo essay of what this looked like. But here's how the Minneapolis Tribune recounted the experience of a diver in 1937. Quote, in the first place, the water is so dirty it is impossible to see more than 12 inches, even with the aid of a powerful light. And it isn't easy to feel one's way around, lugging air wrenches and other paraphernalia, and it's still harder to work with heavy apparatus needed to move the several tons of pipe into place. Also, the bottom of the river isn't the warmest place in the world in October, even with a heavy diving suit on. And yet we still use this pipe every day. Isn't that amazing? So, where does all the water go? Well, for about 70% of the Twin Cities, our waste flows to the southeast corner of St. Paul, to the Metropolitan Wastewater Plant, which has been humming along for more than eight decades, 24-7. It's one of the largest wastewater plants in the country, treating more than 170 million gallons of water a day. The plant is informally called Pig's Eye because of its location next to Pig's Eye Lake. It's a pretty heavily industrial area dominated by rail yards and businesses that are shipping raw materials up and down the river. And half a century ago, this area was also home to a massive dump that was regularly on fire. So you get the idea. It's not a residential area. Once the water gets to the plant, it flows through screens that are spaced about half an inch apart to remove all the things people might flush down the toilet, from condoms and feminine hygiene products to potato chip wrappers and fast food containers. I've seen this pile of stuff in person, and I promise it's just as disgusting as what you're likely picturing in your head right now. That material is all sent to a landfill. Okay, now what happens to the dirty water? Well, first it sits for a while, literally. The first stage of purification at the treatment plant just uses gravity to naturally separate the heavy solid material, like human waste, from the water while it's sitting in holding tanks. In wastewater lingo, what sinks to the bottom is called sludge, and the fats and greases that float to the top are called scum. The sludge is dried out a bit using a centrifuge before it's sent to a giant building with three massive incinerators, which reduce it to ash in a giant fire which is 1300 degrees. That ash is in landfill down in Rosemount. Those massive incinerators, though, do more than just burn up our poop. They help generate power in the summertime, and they also heat the plant in the wintertime. Okay, so now we've got mildly dirty water. The big stuff is out of it, but it's still dirty, right? So here's where things get really scientific. Scientists and engineers at the Met Council clean up that water with the help of colonies of microorganisms that feast away at the pathogens and nutrients and organic material in the water. This is what happens naturally in rivers and streams, but at the plant, they're putting it into overdrive by pumping oxygen into special tanks and tweaking the environment to ensure that the right type of bugs are in there, like those that consume phosphorus. The microorganisms are constantly regenerating, and those that die off are sent to be incinerated along with the sludge. Pretty fascinating, right? So now this water is cleaner than the river it's entering, and that's where it goes. It goes into the Mississippi River, and sometimes in the summer months it gets sort of a bleach treatment to get a little bit of a disinfectant, but basically it's very clean water. Now, it's not clean enough to drink, which is a question that comes up occasionally. You would want 
want to send this water through a drinking water plant, such as Minneapolis, for example, takes its water from the Mississippi River upstream of the metro plant. And there are special filters, carbon filtration and things like that that happen at that plant to get it to a level where it's acceptable to drink. So the metro plant is just one of the council's nine plants. And the other ones are much, much smaller than the metro plant. And most of them do not incinerate their sludge. Some of them send sludge to the metro plant to be incinerated, but others have interesting ways of disposing of the sludge. So in the Lake Minnetonka area, for example, that sludge is actually pelletized to make fertilizer. That's after it's passed through an anaerobic digester, which removes pathogens. And something similar happens at a plant in Dakota County, where the sludge goes through the digester to remove pathogens, and then it's left out to dry before it's actually applied directly to farmland. So one issue with the incineration is, well, what do you do with all this leftover ash, right? You certainly reduce the volume quite a bit, but there is still ash that remains after that process. State agencies have been studying what to do with our leftover wastewater ash since at least the 1980s. One report in the 80s concluded it could be used to make asphalt or concrete for building roads, though it's unclear how often that ever happened. If you looked at our wastewater several decades ago, it would have had a much higher metal content because that was before tougher regulations on industrial waste. Now, here's one of my favorite wastewater anecdotes. In the 1980s, there was a Nevada-based company that wanted to mine our wastewater ash for gold and silver and other precious metals. So we paid them to take it away and shipped on a train more than 200,000 tons of wastewater ash to a former munitions depot in South Dakota. But then the company went bust. And then South Dakota, like state officials, were left trying to find a way to bury all of that Twin Cities wastewater ash. More recently, though, and I've written about this, researchers at the University of Minnesota have been sprinkling it onto fields to see if it can be effectively used as a fertilizer. Now, remember, it's not like that sludge that's being directly applied in Dakota County. This is just the ash at the end of the process. So they're doing studies to see, you know, what kind of nutrients that adds to soil. The last fun fact I want to share about wastewater has to do with odors, which is a natural thing to discuss when we're talking about wastewater. Across the system, the Met Council occasionally has to release pressure from the pipes. And where they do that, they have these odor control units to help ensure that the air doesn't stink up all the neighborhoods. But to make sure that those are working correctly, they literally bag the air and send it to a facility in St. Paul where people who are trained in detecting smells sniff it using a special machine. I spoke to a Met Council staff member about this once, and she described the smells they don't want to see. Quote, what you're trying to avoid are the putrids and the vomit and the sewer and those types of things. That's when we know there's a problem. Okay, that's it. You made it through my ode to the wastewater system, which earns you a virtual gold star from me for being a truly curious listener of the podcast. Is there something else you'd like to learn about? Drop us a line at curious at startribune.com. Better yet, record the question using your smartphone and email it to curious at startribune.com. And if you know someone who you think might like this show or maybe this episode in particular, please share it with them. We'd really appreciate it. I'd also appreciate any feedback you have about this episode or the show in general. You can send those to curious at StarTribune.com. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at StarTribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.